0: Welcome to Mountain Whispers podcast, conversations on the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. Today I chat to Tyson Adams. Tyson is a trauma-informed men's coach based out of California, and this is a doozy of an episode. I met trauma. I, I met Tyson about a a year ago in a a, a course focused on on psychedelic integration. Um, and I reached out to him because I knew he was a, a badass climber and, and figured he'd have some, some cool stories and some wisdom to share about the deeper lessons that he learned from the outdoors. We have a really good conversation about his climbing experience while living in Thailand and his views on on fair and, and reconciling with death and things. But what really got my interest was his practice around how we access flow states. Now when I talk about flow states, I mean that state of optimal consciousness where you feel and perform at your best. As it's defined by the Flow Genome Project, it is rapt moments of attention and total absorption where you're so focused on the task at hand that everything disappears. Now the most common means to drop into flow is flow triggers like athletical or creative pursuits, but it's possible to... Uh, access it in in your career or or knowledge work, whatever. But what's so interesting and what Tyson and I spend a lot of time talking about is how he's able to reliably drop into flow states through a stillness practice involving perineum squeezes. Now before we get any further, I know this is probably going to enter some woo-woo space for some of the people listening. So for those people... Let me provide some framing on this conversation that's going to be useful. Many very intelligent, well-grounded people frame the world into that which is the rational, material, and scientific, and that which is the woo-woo bullshit. If you're one of these people, this conversation may not be your vibe. That's it. If you're open-minded and willing to explore that which is the more than rational, I think there's a lot to get from this episode. So let's say you're, you're open-minded, but you're pretty sceptical of the woo-woo. I would encourage you for the next hour to consider a new frame on top of the scientific rational, and woo-woo, a new frame called the phenomenological. Before I explain the, the phenomenological, let me first say that this project is about exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors is exploring how we can take the magic of spending time outdoors and use that wisdom to make life a little bit more meaningful. In order to properly explore the deeper lessons we learn here, we're going to need to be open to the more than rational. So rational is an extremely powerful tool, a laser beam of sorts, but it's so powerful that it often destroys things before it gets the chance to measure it, even if there is something there. So to explain the phenomenological, I'm going to butcher it, the phenomenological, let me first introduce what Tyson does.
1: So the primary work that I do with men is in and around what's called sex transmutation. Now this phrase, sex transmutation, came on the scene uh, back when Napoleon Hill wrote about it in his um, famous book, Think and Grow Rich. And he defines it really tightly. He says, the meaning of the word transmute is in simple language, the changing or transferring of one element or form of energy into another. And so what we're talking about here is um, how does an individual take their raw sexual energy and transform or transmute that into uh, things like focus, drive, and flow, which in my experience are the building blocks of an entrepreneurial life but also of a creative life, also of um, a more connected, somatic life, uh, and two, even the way in which we um, move into adventure and the things that we do that are uh, fun for us.
0: Okay, so I know at least one listener who would have had some woo-woo alarm bells go off. First off, Napoleon Hill's book Think and Grow Rich has sold 80 million copies mainstream as fuck. It talks about sexual transmutation. It's one of the foundational 20th century books on personal development. Anyone you've listened to on personal development has probably read it or has listened to someone who's probably read it. If Napoleon Hill vouches for taking a source of energy within your body and transmuting, which means to convert it into focus, drive and flow, It's at least worth giving it a chance. While we haven't found a way to quantify sexual energy or agree on energy centers while using the tools of the scientific method, we can agree that there is a phenomena called sexual energy as a human. That's what I mean by the phenomenological frame. We can also agree that when performing at our very best, there is a phenomena of feeling full of energy. So, even if you're the most radical proponent of the scientific method, you can probably agree that feeling energetic is a phenomena and the body feels energetic in different ways. So, just keep that in mind as we go through that conversation, if you're one of those rational, imperialist, materialist, scientific people. In this conversation, we talk about flow. And Tyson shares his most reliable method is through a stillness practice involving perineum squeezes, which is essentially contracting the muscles in the pelvic floor region. This fascinates me as a tool to reliably perform at your best, so we spend quite a bit of time talking about it. Of course, we talk about his climbing uh, and, and share some cool stories about that. But in terms of going deep in flow, we talk about how you're able to to track flow using brainwave frequencies to measure as well as other physiological markers. We talk about tools in the imaginal, drawing on a lot of of Jungian thinkers, and ideas as well on on, on how you can better perform. We cover a lot of ground, so I've added a bunch of references into the show notes. If anything's unfamiliar, take a look there, uh, and those links should help. Without further ado, here is a far-ranging and very juicy intellectual adventure on the deeper lessons we learn with Tyson Adams. Cool. So Tyson, I, I know you uh, from your work in the space of, of, of men's coaching, but I've always been aware that you've had a passion for the outdoors uh, and I'm really excited to talk about it. So um, to start things off, do you want to tell me, uh, I, I guess, how you got into the mountains or or what captured you? about the mountains in the first place.
1: Yeah. So I'm actually from Washington state and I was kind of from the middle of the state in Ephrata. So where I grew up, it was actually the desert. So I wasn't really in the mountains much as a child, just camping here and there. We would go to Seattle and those types of things as a family. Um, But it wasn't really until after college that I started climbing and climbing was actually what got me into the mountains. Um, And so I, you know, I've been climbing for what maybe 12 13 years now so I've spent a lot of time in the mountains um, but also I've you know I've climbed a lot in the you know in places like Joshua Tree and in the deserts and other places where uh, you know it's not really the mountains but it is the mountains you know what I mean <laughs> so um, yeah so I guess that's a good place to start.
0: Gotcha did you uh, I'm always curious how people get into specifically climbing or other outdoor sports were, were you playing like team sports before that or what is it that that first got you into climbing?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was a team sport kind of guy, football, basketball, baseball through high school. Um, You know, I think a lot of it had to do with my dad's unwillingness to allow me to snowboard when I was in high school that made me really, really attracted to it. So as soon as I got into college, I started snowboarding. So that was probably my first time really being in the mountains, going to Stevens Pass and going up to Whistler and going to Snoqualmie and things like that. Um, so that's a very different form of, you know, being in the mountains, which is obviously with snow, but it wasn't really until after college um, that rock climbing gyms were sort of what pulled me into the outdoors. And what's interesting about that actually is, is that my my first real outdoor climbing was in Thailand. I um, started climbing in the gyms and didn't really have much outdoor experience whatsoever. And then uh, I did a a one-way plane ticket to asia and left my life behind in seattle and landed in southeast asia where i basically lived for on and off for a decade and just rock climbing all over in asia which was really fun um but my first time really on ropes and actually climbing outside was in in tonsai which is a really big um, rock climbing backpacker area over there is an amazing place It's one of my favorite places on the earth Super- no way
0: yeah no, what's the what's the climbing community like there i imagine that they're super international yeah
1: well it's changed so much because of tourism and the way in which the government is but when i first landed there 12 years ago i mean just imagine like reggae rasta bars like right on the beach just people hanging out with slack lines smoking joints just drinking beers and then just climbing all day long and partying at night and fresh fish coming right off the ocean and it was just the most chilled out most relaxed place i've ever been in my life and, uh, and then in the daytime um, they, there would be these chartered boats that would take us out to these islands where you could you know, basically free solo and just climb up you know, whatever you want, 60 feet and then jump into the ocean, which was just super killer. It was amazing, <laughs> loved no it.
0: Yeah,
1: and it was really an interesting thing because like you, you, you didn't have, you had these like, sh- they, they, the climber um, sort of community, they would have all these shitty shoes that people would leave behind. So you just have to find like these nasty shoes if you didn't like want to take your own shoes in the water and so I had like picked these shoes with big holes in it and then you know you just climb up the rope ladder and then when you get up there they would kind of put some chalk in the wall and you just you know chalk up your hands and then you would climb up and I remember this the very first time I did it I I was up and I was with some friends thank God because I had didn't know what I was doing and I was way over my grade and I climbed up and then you had actually had to turn your back to the wall and then there was a like a slag tight or slag, I don't even know what it is, but one of those things that hangs down and it was like out, you know, probably close to s- sort of like five feet out. And so you had to like literally jump to it, like, you know, you're 30 feet off the water and you jump over to it and grab it. And then you climb up the slag tight and then you keep going. And it's a, it's a commitment.
0: It's really scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That's why. And that's free soloing as well.
1: It is. I mean, it's, it's relatively not that high. I mean, it was maybe 30, 35 feet off the water, but yeah. I mean, if you were to miss it, you could take a pretty big tumble.
0: (laughs) Especially if you like, if you miss it and then like you get thrown like off kilter, like you could totally impact on your back or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, fortunately I was pretty tall. So like when I went out to it, I could put my leg out to it and grab, but the girls actually had to physically like leap in the air to get out there. And so that was it was intense you know at that age and just not really climbing very much and had no idea what i was doing and the guys that i were with they were like professionals and so they like breathe tyson breathe you know because i was just my heart was just out of my chest the whole time it was intense
0: <laughs> beautiful yeah. loved it though yeah did, did you like entirely learn climbing by doing or did you did you do it all through workshops or like courses
1: I was fortunate when I got back from Thailand, um, one of the guys that I met at the wedding that I was at, um, there in Tansai, um, he, he's actually my best friend now, but he had been climbing all the way back since they were using pitons. So he's very experienced climber. He, you know, knew Yvonne Chenard before it was even Patagonia. And so I had a pretty epic guide and teacher to help me. And so having somebody who is my dad's age that ended up becoming sort of a mentor and a friend and also we would go climbing all the time it was really just a great sort of you know circumstance to be able to learn from somebody who'd been doing it for like 35 years basically before there was even a sport <laughs> so yeah
0: man that is cool I um yeah I, all, all these sports are like only a generation or two old you know like it's you don't have to go too back too far back to like know who are like the the pioneers like yeah. of the sports so it's cool you got like that like that second degree connection to the to the legends Can can you think about um what say the like meaningful like lessons you learned from those things the, the reason i ask is um like so much of the outdoors is this kind of like apprenticeship mentorship learning by doing type things. Yeah. thing so i'm always fascinated to hear the story
1: yeah i mean i could go in a lot of different directions i mean there's the physical the emotional the spiritual i mean there's a lot there i think what comes up for me is my relationship to fear and my relationship to death were pretty immature before I started rock climbing. Um, I think that, you know, every time I go climbing now, you know, you, you, you move up and you're going to go lead or something. You have to, you have to have a relationship with death. That's a little different than you know, everyday life. I mean, when you get in your car, you don't think that you're going to die, although you could die. But when you go rock climbing and you're about to go lead something, there's a possibility that a piece of gear could break or a you know rock could break or you could get flipped upside down. I mean, I've had a situation where that happened once, and and it freaks you out. And so I think that for me, uh, my relationship to being calm in stressful situations when ordinarily you would grip and you would squeeze and you're, you know, you would flex how to breathe and relax in moments when you are in a dicey situation where, you know, there could be injury or death. It's definitely, you know, it's a muscle that you have to develop over time and you have to have that relationship. I mean, one of those things, I was actually talking to a friend of mine recently and she was talking about this, you know, if you're going to go skydiving or you're going to go bungee jumping you know, you have to make peace with your death when you jump off that, you know, jump out, jump out of the plane or you jump off that, that bridge or whatever. And I think that it's the same kind of thing, although you're not jumping off of something, but you walk up to it, you're like, okay, here we go. And I always kind of have that moment where it's like, I could die here today. Okay. It's just good to realize that I've had a great life. Like it's been wonderful. It's been lovely fucking win for it. And here I go. And then I start climbing. So it's always just sort of that how do I speak to myself in that moment, just to sober myself to the, to the nature of like, this is a, this is a, an extreme sport and, and people die all the time. And I think that having that sobriety is uh, really important. And, uh, and I, I went ice climbing this year, um, this winter for the first time, and we were just top roping, you know, it was in the array. So it wasn't leap climbing, but uh, it was, it was just same kind of thing. Like, you know, you never know a piece of ice could fall or whatever. And you just, you realize like, okay, yeah, this is, this is, we do this for a reason. You know, this, the reason why it's so fun and the reason why it's so spiritually connecting and emotionally and physically challenging is because there is the edge that you're walking that you could die in that moment. And I love that feeling now, but at first I did not like it. It was really my enemy for a very long time. <laughs>
0: mm. so. Yeah. Yeah, i'm so glad you, you took a conversation this way because it's it, it's something that's, that's really passionate to me and part of why i started this project is, is for this exploration um in terms of like the the transformation that that can happen in these sports um mm. and i love that you that you take the the opportunity like when you practice or before you practice these sports to to acknowledge it because it's like to to acknowledge the risk of death and, and make peace with it because i think that's uh that's really really powerful.
1: Yeah, and it's not just about making peace with it within myself when I go on climbing trips or things, you know, it's also about just sending a you know, sending a a message to my folks, you know, love you guys, you know, I'm going rock climbing. It's always good just to say like love you guys before I do these things. I mean, I don't do mountaineering that's dangerous. I haven't done things that uh, are, you know, alpine style stuff, so obviously that's a whole other realm of danger. Um, but you know, there's, there's always the possibility of, of major injury or death. And so it's just nice to be able to inform your folks like, Hey, I'm going to go do this thing. And, you know, I love you guys, but this is who I am. And, and sometimes they're like, why do you tell us just do it? <laughs> but, uh, it's just the way that I am. So,
0: yeah, it's funny. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't, it, it works better for me to not tell my mother when I do these things, cause it just makes her worry so much more. Yeah. Um, but so I, I i'm curious to, to, to learn more about that the transformation of of how you got good at uh, better at accepting the risk uh uh and of mortality or accident um specifically because that actually that's what what draws me the most to climbing coming from uh mountain biking where you don't have time to think about your, your mortality if you if you if you're if you're thinking about it you're you're going to flinch and you're going to crash. Like it has to be like all instincts where, where the, like the beauty of rock climbing is that like you can be on a hard move and, and you can have to like have that panic attack and then have to like talk yourself out of it while you're on it, you know? And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And it's also uh, the sometimes terrifying thing. I think it's both. And, you know, it's, it's, You know, I strive to try to climb through cruxes as best as I can. If I know that there's going to be a crux or I get to the crux, I mean, ideally, um, I will strive to climb through it as opposed to getting to it and then taking that sort of rest and that break and and then going for it. I mean, if I can, then I know it's there. Or if I've climbed that route before and I know it's there, I strive to just move through it as opposed to, taking the moment to really think like, oh shit, this is it. If I fall here, I could really get injured or hurt. And I find that often in the overthinking, there, be, there begins to be too much of the anxiety. And then within too much of the anxiety, then when we get to the crux, then we end up falling, falling more, more likely to fall. So it's taken a while for me to realize that. And when I'm climbing new routes, sometimes you don't know it's the crux until you're there. And then when you're in it, you're like, "Oh shit!" And so it's different depending upon what you're climbing and how often you've climbed it and things like that. But yeah, it's 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 always uh, it's always just a you know a different day and different moment. And some days the crux is not the crux; it's easy and you flow right through it. And the next day you're totally pumped and you you, you get down on yourself because you know you, you you couldn't even get to the crux. You know, so it's just that ebb and flow of Uh, you know, every day is very different, especially if you've been climbing multiple days, and maybe you're strong that day, or maybe you're not feeling so strong, so, yeah. yeah.
0: Is there situations that come to mind, uh, or stories that come to mind of of where you felt you, say, froze on the wall? Yeah, yeah, I mean, when
1: I'm, when I haven't climbed in a while, um, I might be physically in shape, but I'm not in head shape. Like I'm I'm heady. And so there's moments when my body wants to do it, knows what to do, but my mind is more locked into the fear than it is into the flow. And so what I can say about that is just that I mean my my worst fall was a situation where I had not climbed the route before. I had watched my friend climb it, but he was much stronger than me. This is down in um, um, Snoqualmie Pass. And, uh, and so I knew what to do, but then when I got there, my body was pumped and I was like, oh shit. And I knew that I was gonna fall. And I was above, I was above the bolt and I was probably halfway to the next bolt. And so it was, or I was actually almost to the next bolt and I knew I was gonna take a big whipper. Um, And it was, I hadn't taken a whipper for years because I was living in Asia. And so I hadn't been climbing very much. And so when you haven't fallen, like fallen in a long time, the butterflies are there. You're like, fuck, I don't even remember how to fall. It's been so long since I've climbed. Um, And so when I I actually, you know, took the whipper, what ended up happening is, is that the rope was like this and my leg, actually got wrapped beneath the rope. And fortunately my, my leg kind of wrapped around it and I bent my knee and held it. And so I could feel it burning like all the way down my leg on my calf. It left a huge scar. But if I hadn't, if I hadn't have like actually tried to grab on with my leg and I had just tried to you know, use my leg to move off of it, it would have flipped me upside down and I wasn't wearing a helmet that day and I could have potentially, you know, hit my head. And so that was a moment where, you know, it freaked me out, it scared me. I mean, it was one of those moments where I was like rattled, you know, and I didn't climb the rest of the day. I mean, I might've climbed something that was easy, but it was one of those moments in time when I was like, okay, like, yeah. If I hadn't have had the instinct to allow my, like the rope to burn my leg, I probably could have died in that moment. And so that also woke me up to wearing a helmet. You know, I was, that was many years ago, but it was just one of those moments when, you know, helmets kind of were, some people wore them, some people didn't. And I was just, I had never really worn them. You know, it was mainly sport climbing and bouldering and things. Uh, But after that, I was like, no, screw this. I don't care. I'm going to wear helmets from now on. Cause you know, it was, it was was one of those dicey moments. Mm
0: -hmm. So yeah. Simple cost benefit equation. Like, in terms of, like, what is the inconvenience of wearing a helmet in the sitch? Mm-hmm. What about the opposite? Like, what's some of the, like, the best memories or mm-hmm. the moments where you're most in flow or, the like, the most epic sense that you had? Yeah. Um,
1: I was never more than about a 512A or so lead climber. Um, but when I knew a route and I'd done it before and then I'd come back to that same crag at a later date in a fresh space and I knew that I you know after I warmed up I knew it I knew every move those are the moments that are blessed for me I mean when you're getting on a 512 or 5 whatever it is you know I can I can top rope all the way up to 513 but the reality is for me is is that when I've not done something I it's hard for me to find flow but when I have done something it's this moment where my body just knows what every move is and all I have to do is remember that move and so then when I get to the wall I kind of enter this sort of meditative trance and I just see myself and I just trace it and I remember and I kind of move my arm this way and move my arm that way and then I move my leg and I I can kind of see the whole line almost as if I'm tracing it um with my mind's eye and then when I hit the wall and I just get on it I I time my breath I time the moves I know where it's going I know how to move and you know you get to the top and it just it feels effortless and you're like wow that was a you know that felt like a 5.9 or that felt you know like a 5.10 it was nothing because the flow is so perfect and you know it that it didn't even feel hard and that's like the beauty of that but it was hard enough where you're like you get the adrenaline because it's because it's a hard route so i loved those moments those are those are sort of my favorite moments when i get to repeat things that are you know that are that are mind mapped effectively and mm-hmm. body mapped so
0: awesome what about like rituals to get into flow before a climb you you spoke about like acknowledging the risk is there any other rituals that you have to to best get into it
1: yeah well we've talked about this in the past but for those that are listening um i i work with my my perineum a lot so doing perineum squeezes is how i regulate my nervous system so when i squeeze my perineum um that energy actually shoots up my spine and into my brain and it uh, for me, I mean every person's different but for me it actually creates a parasympathetic charge where it actually calms me down. So in a situation in life whether it's rock climbing or whether it's otherwise and I want more energy, I will you know squeeze my perineum 10 times fast and I can actually give myself sort of a, a boost of, of energy because basically what I'm doing is I'm taking my raw sexual energy and I'm turning that into, Another form of energy, which is in the mind, which then allows for me to move through that experience, depending upon what it is, whether that's related to business, focus, flow, drive, willpower, creativity, imagination, but also when I'm doing activities outside, rock climbing, and even working in the gym, for example. So the way that I activate flow is by tapping that, but also if I'm over-regulated or I'm over-functioning and I'm starting to feel fear, same thing, I will tap it, but slowly. And I can actually draw that energy into my heart and I can actually slow down my heartbeat so that I can actually regulate my nervous system to calm down as I'm shaking out and then moving energy, you know, out of my arms so that I can actually make the move. So basically there's kind of a duality there, either more energy or calming down if I'm over-functioning in a fearful state. And I, I, I didn't really learn that necessarily outside. I learned that in the gym and then i've kind of taken that and applied it when i go outside and it it actually works real well so
0: that's cool because i like it's a lot more common to have flow triggers from specifically breath like you you, you can like you can access that change that shifts in parasympathetic nervous system through the breath only uh and and i i still don't think it's that common for, for perennial like Without getting too deep down the rabbit hole, like, is there like a lineage that you got it from or or where did you first hear about like the power of like getting into flow through like the, the, the perineum muscle group?
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately as I was researching sex and, you know, understanding sort of what the ancient, you know, Taoist sex masters did, you know, 25, 30, you know, 3000 years ago. Um, there's all kinds of literature in and around how that kind of came through India, you know, to us in the West. Um, so by studying those types of things and then applying them, I was able to, and also incorporating that within psychedelic states, I was able to sort to realize like, Oh, holy shit, there's actually an abundant amount of energy that's just raw. But if we can transmute that energy into other forms of energy, then there's the opportunity to sort of, uh, be more present in the moment. So, um, but there's a science to it. So the prudental nerve, which is in your perineum, connects into your vagus nerve. And then your vagus nerve basically runs all the way up your spine and into your brainstem. And so when I was in my trauma-informed uh, course, because I'm a men's coach, so I, I you know work with men within sexuality, but specifically doing the trauma training, I was able to learn about the nervous system and understanding how the prudental nerve connects to the vagus that connects into the brain, and then how the brain or excuse me, the vagus nerve also um, connects into all of your major organs. It connects into your lungs, your heart, your intestines, your spleen, and your digestion. And so, if we are capable of working with that energy, we can actually um, allow a parasympathetic experience or, or uh, a softening of uh, the heart when it's you know when it's basically kind of going out of control. And so, if I am feeling a little nervous or I need to get on stage and speak about something or um, or I'm about to go climb something or whatever, then that's the way in which I regulate my nervous system before I actually get to the moment. So, yeah. And then as far as flow states go, I mean, this is something that I'm still learning about, which is what is the connection between perineum squeezes and gamma activity in the brain? And so, you know, if you're looking at alpha, beta, you know, theta, and all of these different brain states at the top of those, which is 31 hertz and above, all the way up to 100 hertz, is um, is gamma. And ultimately, you know, if you listen to Joe Dispenza's meditations, you know, he talks about perineum to pineal gland, perineum to pineal gland, like that's what he's having people do. And so when they come into these big workshops, you know, everybody closes their eyes and puts the eye masks on and he leads these meditations. Um, My assumption is, is that that's what he's talking about. He's not saying it as sex transmutation, which is what I call it, but effectively he's helping people to use their own perineum squeezes to activate a particular brainwave state, which opens up all of these different sensations. So when you're looking at, you know, gamma waves in the brain, you're talking about your peripheral and central nervous systems connecting, and also your different lobes in your brain connecting too. And so, um, it's pretty trippy because if you get good at this and you can start to move it up, it's not just about moving the energy into the brain. Cause if it's just in the brain, then it can kind of create headaches. If you pump a lot of energy there, like if you do a couple, maybe three or four minutes of, you know, per- perineum squeezes, it can get a little bit activated in the brain. But after you get done with that, if you relax and release, it's like, you can kind of visualize that energy that you can, f- and it's a felt sense and it moves down your brain. It kind of comes down these different channels on the side of your face and down your neck. And then what I do is I kind of drop it all the way down and just put it in sort of the lower belly area. So the kind of the space between the belly button and your kind of pubic hair, in um, and that lower pelvic bowl area. And I kind of just imagine it coming down as a, you know, just a, like a pearl or like a, a light where there's just that's where the energy is is stored and once i can get the energy from my nuts and from my testicles and the semen and that sort of the energy all the way up and then all the way back down then it's usable for me and then that's where i try to you know build my business and those are where i get into flow states and that's where
0: i rock climb from from that space that's awesome yeah. so it's so, a so taking that full circle it's funny because it's like it's like you you would initially say it's pretty difficult to bridge like flow states like on the climbing wall with perennial uh perennial squeezes that come from from uh from tantric lineage, sex magic whatever um but it is like ultimately when you think about like the difference between being in flow and the opposite of flow it's completely like that that sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system right of of like which way is it going what what like signals is it sending to your brain to your muscles etc and I, I get the sense that it's like w- whether or not you envision it as that pearl moving up and up and down your body or, or whatever your ritual is for getting you into that, that zone, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like the most important thing is that you have some ritual that can take you from zero to a hundred or take you, you, you're from five to, to 25 and make you that much more able to um, to perform at your best, you know?
1: Absolutely. And for me, I always look at this stuff from this place where like there is science to it. There's an electrical charge coming up. There's also cerebral fluid. It is activating the vagus nerve. But then if you're looking at it from a, let's say, you know, a, a Taoist perspective or, um, you know, a, tant- a tantric perspective, you know, they're going to talk about all this woo-woo type of energy and stuff like that, you know? And so for me, I kind of hold it as a both hand. It's scientific and it also is energetic and we're both spiritual beings and physical beings. Um, and when I draw it down. It's not necessarily that I just imagine it because I think that when a man imagines things, often he's projecting a narrative or a story outside of himself where he's, he's actually not feeling it. So for me, when the energy moves down, it's actually a felt sense. Um, the only thing that I really imagine is, is that once I feel it in the belly, I just imagine it as a tiny little pearl there. That's the only thing that I imagine. Everything else is a felt sense. I don't know why I just imagined it that way, but that's just the nature of it. So, okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Matt, I, I know when, when I first asked this question, I was like, without going down the rabbit hole. Now I'm too, I'm too interested to not go down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it, it's funny. So, my uh, like, how I uh, like, I, I first found flow through uh, extreme sports before that. Um, my, my background was in track and field, and that I ran cross country and track and field, like kind of. 5000 10000 half marathon um but i i was also incredibly disembodied you know i like my, my athletic career ended up ending um because like uh, there was a bunch of, of chronic injuries that i i i didn't properly address and and they were mostly around um like my my ankle range of motion so an achilles injury just like meant my ankle locked up and and then hit like a, a tiny like strain in my hip or glute med just meant that my, my entire hip um, locked up and, and um, at like the, the end of my career, I, I think I saw something like nine different specialists, like physio, osteopaths, chiropractors, sports medicine, doctors, orthopedic surgeons, trying to figure out what was going on with my, my hip. Um, and uh, it, I, it, ultimately I couldn't get an answer. That's kind of what ended my, my running career. Um, but like, through the, 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 three years after that, uh, where I've been kind of exploring other sports, not really competitively, um, but, but still exploring it. And at the same time, I've become a lot more embodied. Um, it, it's actually been, uh, what would you call it? Like neuromuscular engagement. That has been the answer to it. Like I, I've been able, I've become so much more embodied that I can actually feel specific muscles engaging and disengaging um and i've i've been able to 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 i haven't like not to a competitive level but but make so much more progress than i did with those eight nine ten different specialists that i worked with hmm. um, what was
1: the what was the turning point like what was the, the like when did the light go on like oh shit i'm not even aware that i'm not in my body here
0: it was very slow slow i, I couldn't say I put a, a turn on point but but funny enough the one that that sticks out to me most I, but I wouldn't, even though I wouldn't call a turning point was I I was actually in a 10 day Vipassana retreat. Mm. um, And uh, in the, like the six months before that I had been like periodically seeing a neuromuscular specialist and they had diagnosed um, things like how my, uh, my tibia was slightly leaning outwards, but my, uh, my femur slightly leaning inwards, all these like random uh, compensations that that observed that I, I i couldn't feel or i wasn't a, a aware of um and i was uh, i was kneeling on say like day seven day eight and I, I i started feeling like um you know those old wooden tennis rackets that you have to put like a um a brace on or they get buckled yeah my body was just feeling buckled and, and it was just it was like this really uncomfortable feeling and then as i like leaned into it I realized I was becoming aware of those compensations that were in my body, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so powerful when that happens and and then, and then everything just shifts and it just, it's, it's like a, a layer of consciousness opens up when we have that body awareness. I, I'm glad that that happened. Like, I'm glad you were able to bridge that gap. I mean, a lot of people live their whole lives without ever having those moments where they actually feel what's going on inside themselves
0: (laughs) i have like honestly it's like it's wild and and i'm still in the the process of uh, unfolding it and so so what's funny at the the same time um i've uh I, i went from like when i was a runner being like incredibly rational material skeptical uh, of, of anything we were spiritual to like slowly letting more and more of that into my world and opening into that and um like with time it became like more like being able to see the value more and more of like uh i'm gonna call it imaginal practices like so so for example like the practice of moving light up and up and down your body etc like um like yes and is a good way to to, to view that because yes there's there's stuff going on in your body in terms of brainwave and and nerves being activated, et cetera. But the, I still get the sense that the the best way to stimulate that activity on a, uh, on a like neurobiological level is through spiritual, very woo woo practices of imagining energy traveling up and down your body, et cetera.
1: Oh, I totally agree. I think imagination is the key to almost all of this flow healing, you know, peak performance imagination is the 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 killer thing that i use on the regular i mean i when i sit down and meditate daily for usually around 25 minutes i'm not just going to empty the mind i'm going in there to spend time in imagination i'm going to allow my mind to go wherever it needs to go to help solve different problems and um and then of course i loop in my perineum squeezes with that and it ends up opening up these doorways and these gateways to these uh, you know other imaginal realms where this other information can come through. And then I build from that, whether that's business or personal or what have you. So yeah, I love that. I love the imaginal. It's super, super important. And it's a, it's a skill. You know, there's an it's it's like a you know an intellectual quotient, emotional quotient, spiritual quotient. Imaginal quotient is its own thing. And I think, you know, you think about uh, business school or, you know, going to college in the future, I mean, a lot of these jobs are gonna be gone because of automation and AI and all of this, you know, the, 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 reality is, is that that's the most important skill you can develop if you want to live in the next, you know, and in the, in the, in the, in the, if you want to go into, let me just put it this way. I have a feeling that those that are going through business school today, when they get out, if they're entering now, their jobs are going to be gone. They're, they're going to be automated in some way. So if you can, really cultivate and understand and really work on imagination and i do that through dream work i mean that's my big thing but you know it's it's an important it's an important skill to develop so i'll leave it at that
0: (laughs) Mm. Uh, yeah so i'm going to tie this back to the outdoors just so i can keep talking about the space um th- this project is uh is the deeper lessons we learn from the mountains essentially how like a practice in the mountains is like typically it's it, it's play it's recharging etc cetera, etc cetera, but it it also facilitates transformation and i think um with a little bit more intentionality um it it, it can can become an even more transformative practice um and so with that speaking of transformative practices um what is your dream practice like
1: yeah yeah um so i'm fortunate um one of my clients is um a guy named steve eisenstadt he um, started pacifica graduate institute in santa barbara and Pacifica is where, you know, Simon, Simon went to Pacifica. Yeah. So, you know, this is the number one, basically, um, archetypal depth psychology program pretty much in America, but potentially even the world. And so, you know, you have really great humans that have built that, you know, Joseph Campbell from the hero's journey. He was one of the founders, um, and James Hillman, he was Carl Jung's pred- you know, his predecessor effectively, they were friends. And so you have these really incredible men that built this university. And so I get to work daily with Steve Eisenstadt, who actually happens to be one of the leading dream experts on the planet. And one of the things that I've learned through uh, sort of working with Steve and just in general, working with dream is that, you know, there's a really beautiful quote that I love. It's a James Holman quote, but basically it's this concept that, you know, when you interpret the dream, You trade the dream for the interpretation, and so I think that what that basically means to me is, is that, you know, when you try and interpret something, then we actually lose the beauty of what it is, and then we are or just meaning making out of it. And so, when I apply that sort of philosophy to life, and that effectively, like a lot of people think that your 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 dreams are just a projection of your own reality, um, you know there's another way to look at it, which is to say that your dream world is, if you're dreaming of a tree, it could be that that tree is dreaming you into its world just as much as you've dreamt it into yours, which is to say that when we can see that dreams are alive and they're never done, they're always alive, meaning that you write them in sort of present moment. Anytime you revisit that, the dream's still here. It's not in the past anymore. So dreams really help us to bridge that gap into that deep presence and that deep now. And there's just been so many radical explosions in my life. Um, I've built businesses from a dream I had, you know. So I have really deep reverence for dreams. And the reason why I bring that up and how that applies to nature is, is that when you think about psychedelic work and you think about dream work and you think about being in nature, there's this convergence, this sort of constellation of of uh spirit emotion and also the physical reality that you're in it um where you see that everything is alive you see that the mountains are alive and you see that the streams are alive and the bugs and the birds and and you are alive and so there isn't this separation you know where we're just in the world it's like no we are of the world and in that non-dual reality um we have a deeper appreciation for nature in ways that uh um you know, sort of make us more appreciative of our dream world and our dream world makes us more appreciate, more appreciative of our, of our time in nature. And they're really very similar because a lot of people, you know, when they're in a dream, they don't quite stop and just be still to slow it down, to just notice and to get really detailed with what's there. Like, what is that tree? Like, what's it communicating? and actually have a communication with that. And so as you kind of slow that down and you learn to work with a dream, then you can bring that into the way in which you're interacting with nature. And then for me, you know, I'm constantly in awareness of those omens or those moments where all of a sudden this conversation's at that exact precipice or this moment, and then, you know, a blue jay flies over and lands. And then there's just those moments or shooting star or, you know, a leaf blows and it hits you in the face or whatever it might be. I don't necessarily interpret those moments as having necessarily any significance, just like in a dream. I try not to interpret the dream, but I am aware of them. And when they happen, I'm like, whoa, I'm in the deep now I'm in the deep presence. I'm in the deep here and I'm awake and I'm aware. And I love those moments I live for them because they're expansive. Um, and, one story that I will share that it's again, everything relates back to perineum squeezes, but I have to share this story because it's so fucking, it's such a beautiful story, which was I climbed up this hill one day, um, behind my house where I work out and I was at the top and I'm just standing, looking at nature and I'm just in this process, just taking it in. It's just so gorgeous. And I'm doing my perineum squeeze practice. And all of a sudden I sneeze. And as I sneeze, I sneeze. And you know how like when you sneeze, you get kind of that orgasmic feel where it's like, ah, this kind of feels kind of nice. Well, I sneezed and I kept squeezing my perineum really fast. And I was squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. And I realized that I could literally elongate that sensation, that orgasmic feeling in my body. And it was like just getting longer and longer and longer. And I was like, holy shit, how long can this thing last? And then in the next moment I sneezed again. And then I was like, okay, here we go again. So I was doing it even faster, but at the end of that sneeze, I just squeezed my pyramid and just held it. And I can push the energy all the way through my body and it just elongated it. And so I say that that's how I bend time. Now, obviously I'm not really bending time, but what it actually is doing is it's bringing me into the deep now into my body and into that moment. And it's like this crazy trippy meditative state when I'm in nature and that's experience. But what I realized after that experience was like, holy shit, I could apply this, this, this tool, this skill to anything. And so now when I walk up to a flower and I smell it and I bring those aromas into my body, I squeeze my perineum and I push that, that, that aroma to every cell in my body. And I kind of just sit there in that sort of like woozy kind of drunk state of the flower And it just sort of elongates that moment of awe or that moment of gratitude just a little longer than normal than when I just would smell it and walk on by. And so then I apply that to when I'm petting a dog or when I'm giving somebody a hug or when I'm eating a piece of chocolate or when I'm on a conversation that's really like powerful. And so this practice of um, how do we fuse and merge our physiology and these responses to being a part of the world is I think in a state of hyper speed where we're learning to be in the world and not like, just feel like we're separate from it. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Cause it's just a, it's a story that's kind of trippy about nature.
0: <laughs> I, when I hear that, what, what I find so fascinating is like, it is like how much of a, is not the right word, like how, how you're able to have that impact on your physiology. Like, yeah, I think like, cause flow, flow states are so like, they're so, f- fleeting and um elusive there's so many factors at, at, at play and it. it kind of seems like like you've been able to find that like that Thor's hammer towards like experience like experience it's,
1: it. it's trippy and like that's you know that's one of the reasons why i'm like so hell-bent on raw sexual energy into focus drive and flow and creativity and imagination because same thing happens when i'm writing i'm writing i'm writing i'm writing, I'm writing. i have block Boom, 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 pump it. Ah, and then I'm back and I'm and I'm in flow again. And so it's this weird sort of situation where I'm like, okay, whether or not I can scientifically prove that I've cracked being in flow, the reality is, is I can actually in any given moment put myself in a flow state. And it's a it's a powerful, powerful tool. And I can apply it to everything in every direction of my life, including sex, which is to say that, you know, like you want an erection on demand, boom, five minutes, there it is. You don't even have to think or touch yourself and you can bring it up. You can bring it down if you want. You can kind of like have control of your physiology. And in that sort of uh, hyper control, you actually feel very control in other states and other realities. Um, So, and and quite frankly, also listening, I'm not necessarily the, the best listener. You know, I have a lot of chatter in my head, but when I'm in a situation where I'm listening and I really want to take in and somebody's asking me a question, that'll be the same thing. I'll squeeze it and I'll just hold that. And then I will really be able to allow those words into my body and allow those words into my psyche and into my spirit. And then I can, from there, I can actually move into the conversation with more agility and more um, attention to what somebody's just you just know, said. So it's deep listening, deep, deep now moments.
0: Hmm. Yeah. 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 I- it's funny like uh like uh, this is an exploration of like reaching into the deep now like finding that transformation and flow through the outdoors and and it's funny like while like outdoors is part of your practice but perineum squeezes is is so much more (laughs) part of your practice like it is yeah Yeah. it was discovered it was
1: discovered in nature but now i've been able to apply it to
0: pretty much everything gotcha Cool. So kind of, uh, I, I want to double click on something you, you just mentioned, uh, uh, earlier on specifically about, uh, I guess the imaginal and the outdoors and it um, it, it, you first put me on to, to, to Bill plotkin and it's, it's funny. I'm, um, I am reading, um, Soulcraft, uh, at the the same time as, um, what's his name? Robert McFarlane's mountains of the mind, both like, like the philosophical books about the, uh, the the outdoors, and it's so funny how they compare. Like uh, Robert McFarland's is like a very like Western, like traditional, uh, like Cartesian view, whereas Pluckin is is very much into the imaginal. I mean, I'm curious uh, if you could speak a little bit more about like the lessons you learned from Bill Pluckin's work on touching on the deep now uh, through the outdoors.
1: Absolutely. So, first and foremost, I just want to say that Bill Plotkin is my all time favorite author. I got all of his books and I love him. His newest book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, this one here is just an incredible, incredible. I mean, it's the book that he's been wanting to write for 40 years. And so, finally, he got to the stage where he had written all of these other, you know, sort of foundational books to get to this one. But basically, Plotkin's concept is that everything in the world knows how to be what it is a rock knows how to be a rock a tree knows how to be a tree an animal knows how to be an animal you know and the ocean knows how to be the ocean humans we are the only ones that you know all have our own unique sort of imprint and we may not actually figure out how to be who we are. And so, you know, when you can look at sort of the way that he talks about it, it's like we go through this dying process where literally we die to who we think we are so that we can be reborn to then find what he calls your own eco niche. And your eco niche effectively in this book is that we all have a gift to deliver to the greater earth community is, is what he calls it. And so I really resonate with that in the sense that um, we are all individual. We are all unique, but the reality is, is not everybody is supposed to do the same thing. And so what's so great about his work, especially as it relates to, um, you know, how he talks is that, you know, he brings people into the outdoors and they do these vision fasts effectively for, you know, seven days and they go and they're out, you know, they're alone and, um, and then they have these breakthrough experiences. And it's not just like a sort of a, sort of a, an initiation or a, coming of age kind of thing, because he talks about it very seriously, which is that you actually not just risk emotional death, but you actually risk physical death, meaning that you can actually go crazy in this process as you move out of, let's say, what he calls a patho-adolescent lifestyle into being married where your soul and your ego come together and they actually are here of service to the planet. Um, But I really, really resonate with his work just because he's coming from an, you know, a depth psychology place, an imaginal place. Um, you know, he integrates medicine work if necessary. Um, he is an outdoor, you know, he's in Colorado. So he leads these beautiful wildlife excursions through Utah and in and, and Colorado. I'll probably do do one at some point with him just because I think it's just such a remarkable, you know, experience to, to be in these wild places that he's found. Um, but yeah, he's, the. He's the real deal. And without his book, I wouldn't have had the strength to be able to surrender in my own psychedelic journeys to letting go of who I was and becoming who I am now today. So I very value his perspective because I didn't have a framework to understand what the hell was happening to me as I was going through these mini ego deaths over and over and over, over the years of doing psychedelics. So.
0: Gotcha. So let me just layer on some concepts here. Um, because I, I, what comes up when you say that is, um, like specifically deep psychology. It's, uh, like it's something I've only like delved into in the last couple of years. But I think it is uh, an incredibly powerful uh, modality for uh, finding meaning and also like see, getting the practical benefits of of, of the imagination. Um, and like specifically, like when when we're talking, like society as a whole like the meaning crisis which jamie wheel talks about in, in recapture the rapture or or john viveki um goes into a lot in in, in his lecture series uh, it it is really a one of the great challenges of like that that, that western society is is facing and so um it, it's specifically rites of passage uh is is something that i um like when you uh, you can think, I think it's an interesting concept to think that let's say 50% of Western society are are still in an adolescent phase uh, from a developmental stage. um, And you can perfectly thrive. I would say the number is much higher than that. Okay. What what number would you put it at?
1: I would probably say, I mean, if you're looking at the way in which plot can you know kind of looks at the model um and and also jamie he would understand this too because of you know his experiences but i would say it's probably closer to maybe five percent of the people on the planet have actually gone through the journey wow okay
0: yeah i I love playing with these numbers because it's also like um like it's also very conceptual like as soon as you start to define what this is it like it it very quickly breaks down um but um I I guess maybe a better way to approach it is um, or or I guess where where I want to go with it is um, like a a rite of passage ceremony is an incredibly effective modality for passing through to, to whatever this, like this next level of, of growth is. Um, And what, what Jamie will does an incredible job of is, is walking through like how you can reach these, these transformation through, through respiration, through sexuality, through the outdoors, um, through fasting, etc. Um, what, aside from perineum squeezes, which <laughs> modalities do you, uh, are most effective for you? Cause I know you have a, a very strong practice around this.
1: For, so say the question again, so,
0: where... <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm I'm waist deep in different concepts kind of walking through these here Um, specifically for let's say transformational practices or or I guess a better way for me to define it is um, like the. Let's say like the the rituals say that you, I know you you have specific rituals tied to the moon cycles. I often think at least what my practices and of similar, like of many like rites of passage, like in terms of entering the liminal space or entering the, the, the imaginal spaces. Is that what you call it? Or just speak a little bit more about what your practice is like there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I strive to do my psychedelic work, which often is, and usually is in nature once a month, but I also piggyback that with, my masturbation practice. So basically I'm only, I'm doing semen retention pretty much the whole month. And then I kind of pair that up where there's a psychedelic experience and then also a masturbation experience with the moon. So that's how I connect to nature in a way that's different than most men. And one of the things that comes up as it relates to plotkin is You know, the the important thing to understand here is, is that most people they're going through life going, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? Like, what am I here to do? And in my experience, the way that I relate to that, and I used to be the same way, it's like a part of the ego asking another part of the ego, like, what am I here to do? And you can get into a loop where you're just looping on yourself. You know, we talk about this with Simon, where you end up looping on yourself, like, what am I here to do? And I think that what actually is required um, of us is to ask the right question. And we need to flip that. And so for me, you know, it's, a, it's about asking the question, you know, what is, the, what is the planet asking of me? What is the planet asking of me? You know, that's something I picked up from, from Plotkin, which is to say, when you're asking the right question, then you can listen. And when you're in a state of listening, then we can start to discover really what is our eco-nation? What is it that we're here to, do, to deliver and to be of service to, the, to, you know, to humanity effectively? And so when I started to do that, with psychedelics and nature and moon cycles over the course of several years, I got to a place where I had breakthrough experiences and breakthrough moments where information was communicated to me, which helped me to establish what I'm here to do, which is to help work with men in and around sexuality. So um, I could go deep, deep into that actual practice, but I mean, I don't, I don't know sort of how deep we want to go, but what
0: what's like where are we at here with that question yeah okay let me let let me reframe it because i i think uh to to go deep into that practice would need another episode uh for (laughs) sure we would um so i i guess what i'm interested in is uh let's frame it down specifically to the arena of nature um and when you're in something that's like slowly been unfolding for me is um, in fact, what's, what's the quote? There's a quote. uh, I'm going to butcher it, but the something along the lines of the world is full of, of magic, something uh, patiently waiting for our senses to get sharper. Um, Mm. And I've started as I started like opening my eyes to um, or opening my senses to like the spirit and the magic of the the, the nature I'm immersed in, like I, I've started picking up more and more. What's your process of of like trying to tune into that realm uh, of nature been like?
1: Yeah, I'm constantly in a state of listening. Um, I'll 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 give you a story. I'll give you a story that'll help to elucidate it. So recently, I was up at the mountain or the little hill same hill that I was just speaking about earlier. And as I was leaving, there was a bird and usually there's not a bird there. It's chirping, but it was chirping and kind of dive bombing in front of me. And so I was just kind of in this dance with him. I'm like, what's that, buddy? What are you doing? What what are you, what are you communicating? You know? And so he would kind of get in my face this way and then get in my face that way and get in my face this way. And, get, and so he kept doing this thing with me. And so finally I was like, all right, I'm just going to walk towards you and then lead me whichever way you want to take me. And so I just walked and then he led me down a a path that I don't usually take to leave the mountain. And so I was like, okay, this is a new experience. I don't usually go down this way. I've done this, you know, hundreds of times in the last year. So I'm going to go down this way. So I go down that way. And I, I'd been down it before, but just, you know, it'd been months and months and, uh, I get to the bottom and nothing happened. I was like, okay, like, no big deal. But then I get in my car and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to drive home a different way. Interesting. Why am I going to drive home a different way? Well, the bird wanted me to go a different way down the path. So I'm going to drive home a different way. So I went a different way home and all of a sudden I drive out park that I've never seen. So then I stop at the park and then I get out of the park and I'm thinking, well, what's here. And then I realize, Oh, there's a couple of people talking over there and Oh, they got some cute dogs. So I walk over and I start petting the dog. And before I know it, I'm talking to this guy who has a dog. And we're standing there in the middle of this field and we're having a mind bending conversation until like 11 PM at night where both of us are just like ripped wide open, you know, tearing at the fabric of the universe. And he has this whole other spiritual connection to these birds showing up. And so it's like one of those things where I try not to make meaning of it. And two, I also let it tell me what it's trying to tell me, which was that I followed suit and it delivered me at this moment in time where I needed to communicate with this guy. And so now we're friends and, you know, he's in his, you know, seventies, he's like an older guy and he has this crazy idea, but he's like a rocket scientist. He's a, he's a brilliant human. And so now him and I are in contact. So I think that what being lucid with nature and, and, and allowing like nature to, to shape you and change you is uh, where when you leave nature, you're a different human being at the end of it, like where you've actually not Egoically moved through nature, but where you've actually moved at the pace at which nature is actually trying to communicate with you, and you actually stop to pause to allow it to communicate whatever messages it has for you. And I think that that's when we start to play in those imaginal realms where you know we're not necessarily interpreting the bird, but where we're actually allowing the bird and or the, the wind or whatever to actually carve us a new path in life and a completely new identity as well.
0: Mm that it's a it's a great story for like for for, for demonstrating or, or or for like pointing to that it's almost like a tightrope walk between um not forcing meaning into it yet still being open to the opportunity for it you know yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: and a good way to describe that is like imagine if a chunk of marble gets put down in front of you and like if you were just to chip away at it and carve something like out of just your brute strength and force and you get done and you're like wow look at this statue of David that I carved okay that would be one way to relate to nature another way to be with nature would be like that that chunk of stone lands there and then instead of an ego like carving something out you dance with it for a week a month a year maybe a decade and then slowly but surely it communicates to start chipping and you chip and it's shaping you as much as you're shaping it. And when you get done carving that thing out, you don't know what it's going to be, and, and it's beautiful in its own right. But it's not this thing that you had the vision for what it was going to be. And so I think that that's the way in which we can be in relationship with nature, where we're we're allowing it to change us, change us um, as we're kind of moving through it. Even if we are, let's say, you know, cutting down a tree and building a log cabin or whatever, we're like we're with the experience as opposed to like controlling it.
0: So. Mm. Yeah, I, what comes up when you say that is uh, the, uh, the adage that flows at the intersection of discipline and surrender. Um, and there, there is not that much is talked about the surrender element of it and, uh, like, and the, the dancing with the muse element before sculpting leading like letting it sculpt yeah what was the line you said about about letting it sculpt you rather than forcing the the scope yeah
1: like basically uh allowing it to to morph and change you as much as you're changing it so it's it's a it's a co-creative process as opposed to i'm gonna i'm gonna create this thing out of you know out of my brute strength for example you know and it's I, i don't the West doesn't teach this much. I mean, these are more da- like Taoist perspectives, even more sort of Eastern ways. And I think they're long lost arts that we really don't consider. And I think that we can, we can learn a lot from, you know, for being in relationship to nature in those types of ways as opposed to just being so just, you know, how we are, which is wasteful
0: often, so. Yeah, well, what comes up when you, when you say that is that I always think about... Um... Like you can model when it comes to flow states, you can like you you can map it around like it, it, like inner states uh, and how that affects like the the outer world around you. So, specifically when you're like when you're tackling like a a, a, a tricky climb, it's like about honing that inner state to to allow you to rise to that occasion. Um, but in creative practice there's, there's very much also like that, the outer world around it, you know, like you, you almost have to interact with that, um, like recognize what's like with that imaginal space almost, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I do. Yeah. What yeah. I,
1: one of the things that I do, I learned this from my, um, best friend Ken is, is seeing rock as liquid. It's just moving really, really, really slowly. I mean, and so when we can come up to a rock and, and, and not just think of it as this hardened thing that's like so permanent, but understanding like for perspective, millions of years, this thing has moved when I'm on, you know, huge doses of, you know, psilocybin and I'm outside and I'm looking at a rock, I can actually see the evolution of the rock. It's really trippy to look at a rock and actually be like, holy shit, I'm actually seeing it as liquid. I'm not seeing it as solid anymore. And so I think that when I when I approach rock climbing, of course, I know that it's solid and it's going to hold me, but I also strive to move over the rock, like I'm liquid and understanding that I'm working with it and I'm not working against it so that it's, you know, it's liquid and I'm liquid, but we're just, you know, it's harder and denser, but, you know, so it's that kind of relationship that creates those flow states. If we can imagine them while we're in them.
0: Beautiful. It's, uh, it's funny i i um like these these spaces uh they're so difficult to conceptualize even more difficult to put into words i'm just imagining like the the three and a half people listening to this they're probably like what the fuck are these people talking about? <laughs> no, um, but i yeah that's that's part of the fun fun it's like trying to like yeah that like you you helped me point to this thing when it comes to flow that that like yeah, that, that I found I got mean, like a little bit closer to.
1: I think the beautiful thing about being a creator and an entrepreneur, like what we're doing here is it's, it's a, for me, it's about the connection. Like this is it. Whether there's three and a half people or 300,000 people, it doesn't fucking matter to me because flow states are in that reality of realizing like this is the moment and whatever happens later is is out of our control. So let's just go for it, you know, and really just, have the conversation that we want to have.
0: And I yeah. think that's
1: like the beautiful, like the beautiful thing about it. And obviously as you, you know, continue on and have more conversations with more people, then you know, then more people will listen and that'll be great too.
0: Yeah, so. that's that's exactly it. Like the, yeah, the uh the the act of like of sculpting in podcast form what what the deeper lessons we learn from the mountains is and and the transformation possibility. Uh, that is, it's, it's like a, a, a sculpture and um, who knows if what we just spoke about in those four, cent, in those last four minutes was like anything <laughs> at all, but it, but the, it, it was the act for sure. Yeah. You
1: know? But it changes us. And that's, yeah. that's the beautiful. Yeah. Thing. I mean, like, when, when we come out of this experience and we say goodbye, I'm going to be different. I don't know about you but we'll have had some different we'll feel different as we move into our lives and I think that that's really the the, beauti- the beautiful thing to strive for when you're when you're in a conversation whether it's podcasting or just hanging out with you know a bud you know is just like how are we really going to tear at the fabric of the universe and walk away from this and be different human beings but be better kinder more competent more in flow more connected human beings at the other side of this so I think that's the sort of the art of life <laughs>
0: absolutely i'm into to that um so it's probably a, a good place to start wrapping things up i'm curious if like in the we've covered a lot of ground in, in this conversation in very different directions i'm curious if there's anything else like when i say that the deeper lessons that you've learned from the outdoors that kind of comes to mind that we haven't spoken about
1: yeah i'll tell you one yep this actually came to me in a psychedelic journey. I've actually shared this journey with you, but certainly not in a public space. And I won't go into the into the fullness of it, but effectively the wind started to blow in the moment. And that started to evoke in me a lot of energy that needed to release. And when it finally came to that energy release and it popped, the wind stopped completely and immediately. And what I realized in that moment is that, The world and nature and the mountains, they're happening to you just as much as you're creating them. And that actually happens simultaneously. So nature's happening to you. You're creating it at the same time. And so I I started playing with that and I started realizing like, oh, I could actually, you know, start to play with nature. So I'll sit, you know, and if I'm just like laying and there's a cloud above me, I'll do my perineum squeezes and I'll literally pump the energy to the cloud and I can burst the cloud and the cloud will just dissolve. And I don't know if the cloud's coming into me or if I'm actually sending energy to it, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me anymore because the reality is, is I've done it three times now since I had that experience and I realized it's just water molecules. And if there's no real distance in space and time between us and other things, or if we can imagine that there's no distance between us, then the possibilities are infinite. And so when you think about it that way, when it comes to applying that to any sort of sport, that's how guys like Alex Honnold can free solo, you know, El Cap and whatever one day or however many hours, because he can visualize himself doing that. And because he can visualize that and he has the strength and the confidence without the fear, then he can actually accomplish that goal. So I think that that's sort of this weird space where we're, Able to traverse worlds and realize that you know that plant is me as much as I am that plant, there's no separation, even though there is. I'm not that plant and I'm Tyson, but I too am that plant. And how I look at that plant, treat that plant, water that plant is going to reflect me and it's going to heal me and help me and encourage me, and vice versa. And so, nature and my relationship to it is like, as I self love, I treat nature well as I go into nature and I feel the love for nature, I feel loved. And so I think that's when we become more eco-conscious and sort of wrapped up in that understanding of, of, yeah, just the beauty of it all, you know, and the trippy miracle of it all, to be honest, without being woo-woo or, you know, placing any dogma around it. So, yeah.
0: So- yeah. Thank you. I don't know how, how we define woo-woo, but uh, I, I think, like dissolving clouds with perennium squeezes is pre- pretty fucking woo-woo, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I dig know. it, I dig, I it. I dig it's, it, I dig
1: it's, it, I dig it. I'm a weird dude.
0: <laughs> no, man, that's, uh, yeah. No, I, I yeah, I, I love that, that that practice. Yeah. Cool. Cool, man, this has been an, an absolute privilege. I did not expect uh, the, the conversation to go in these directions, but, I, but I've enjoyed it a lot. I hope you enjoyed that episode a fraction as much as as I did. I I, I learned a lot, um, and I felt like I uh, was venturing into a new space, which is always fun for me. Uh, If you want more of Tyson, you can find him on Instagram, at TysonAdams underscore. It's also in the show notes. He's also starting a course soon on on, on sexual transmutation for men. I I know I'm definitely going to sign up for it, um, so I recommend it too. That will be on his Instagram. Uh, If you don't know me personally, and you found me on Instagram land somehow, uh, I'd love to connect. Best place to connect with me is Instagram, at Tim Stew, N-Z, T-I-M-S-T-E-W-N-Z, and if you dig this, yeah, please subscribe, there will be more of these coming.